Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here again with... Scott Tobias. Keith Epps. And Genevieve Kosky. On our last episode, we talked about Marie Antoinette, Sofia Coppola's adaptation of Antonia Frazier's book, Marie Antoinette, The Journey, a rare sympathetic look at the queen best known for saying about her starving populace, let them eat cake, a thing she never actually said. Coppola's portrayal of Marie as lonely, isolated, scorned, rich, and unhappy, suffering in a sexless relationship at the whim of her more powerful husband, all winds up being remarkably similar to her retelling of the relationship between Priscilla Beaulieu and Elvis Presley in her new movie Priscilla. While Coppola didn't take the same glitzy post-punk approach to Priscilla, the new movie is once again a book adaptation, this time of Priscilla's memoir Elvis and Me. And once again, it's an intimate, sympathetic portrayal of a woman in a man's shadow and under his control. Unlike Marie Antoinette, though, Priscilla deals with well-documented events within living memory and comes with the blessing of the movie's subject. It still isn't straight documentary filmmaking, but it's much less impressionistic, and in many ways it's much more personal. We'll talk through Priscilla and its connections with Marie Antoinette after this break. Hi. What's your name? Priscilla Boyer. You like Elvis Presley? Of course. Who doesn't? One of the kids listening to these days. Bobby Darren, Fabian, and you. <laughs> Just what is the intent here, Mr. Presley? You got women throwing themselves at you. Why my daughter? Well, sir, I happen to be very fond of your daughter. She's much more mature than her age. 21! <laughs> You don't have to worry about her. Black hair and more eye makeup. I don't know if I like it. What do you mean you don't know if you like it? So, Priscilla, uh, I have some very mixed thoughts on this movie, and I'm pretty curious how you all took it. Uh, what do you? What did you think of Priscilla? I liked it a lot. Yeah, top drawer. Yeah, I thought it was a uh, uh, really, really well done. I will get into like sort of the rush through the end of the story aspect, and then there's things if you don't know the Elvis Priscilla story, I wonder if you're you're going to be completely in the dark as to what's going on there. The sort of the 
locked into this bird in a gilded cage, to, you know, Sofia Coppola favorite subject, well, I think it really worked for me. Honestly, it was incredibly helpful to have Baz Luhrmann's Elvis coming out at the end of last year and kind of providing us with a, you know, point by point <laughs> pocket history of the ups and downs of Elvis's career, because that's something that this movie almost does not touch on at all. And you will occasionally see events happen in a way where you're like, well, something significant's going on over there, but I'm not sure why this matters. And if you if you saw Elvis last year, you know exactly what's going on. And it's very helpful because Priscilla is just is not interested in those details. But it, the two movies, while they're radically different approaches with radically different intentions, I wouldn't say that they're in conversation per se. The timing was very useful in terms of making a little more sense of Priscilla. And Sofia Coppola in talking about Priscilla specifically invoked Marie Antoinette, not the movie, but the the figure as sort of like how she thought of Priscilla in this context. To answer your question, I liked Priscilla quite a bit. I don't think it's like maybe top tier Sofia Coppola. For me, it does. Priscilla herself is maybe a little too much of a cipher for me. Maybe she'll make herself known a little more in subsequent viewings of this movie. But here, we get to know her situation really well. We don't necessarily get to know her really well, like her personality. And like that may kind of be the point because she was never seen as more than an accessory, it seems like, of a beautiful accessory. But to be fair, that is something that can be said of a lot of Coppola protagonists. I think where it became a little tougher for me in this film is, again, the end of the film and in her decision to leave Elvis and sort of her gaining agency. And it felt like it came a little out of nowhere. I didn't feel like I had a great sense of Priscilla as a person. I got a great sense of like their marriage and again the sort of situation she was in. I got a great sense of Elvis as a complete dick, uh, which I, I, I appreciated that, especially after Boslerman's Elvis, that this film kind of engaged with like what an asshole he, he was in, in, in a lot of respects. But as far as like how this story resolves and where it resolves, I couldn't quite meet the film there as much as I wanted to. But overall, again, I really like Coppola. I like what she does. I'm interested in the things she is interested in. So I enjoyed this movie. I think the two main performances are are really, really good. I kind of love the perversion of like not having any Elvis music in, in this movie, which I gathers uh, by necessity. They, they didn't get rights, but it just kind of plays into the extent to which this movie undercuts Elvis as a person and as a celebrity, which maybe is what I came away from this liking the most. But yeah, a lot here with well, also not quite enough here in some respects. I like Elvis. <laughs> so yeah. I, don't wanna, I don't want to say, I think that this movie serves its purpose if you come away not not liking Elvis's music or, or Elvis himself, I guess. But it uh, separates him from his music. Like, yeah. like I think you could yeah. you can like Elvis's music and even like respect what he stands for in American culture and celebrity and all, all sorts of things. But you can also realize I, I, maybe not someone you want to be married to ever. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Or just no. in a relationship to and, and not married to for a very long period of time. To 
what you're saying, Genevieve, I, I think you're right. I, I do think there is a, a bit of a cipher to her, I mean, in part because that's just kind of her life. Not to get ahead, but like kind of like Marie Antoinette, she goes from being bossed around by one family to being bossed around for another. Right. She goes from her father's house to being told what to wear by her husband, or her boyfriend slash eventual husband, and then his dad as was well. <laughs> but the one thing I think is kind of established from the first scene is that she's not anybody's fool necessarily. She's not, she has her guard up when she's approached at the diner and she has a, a willfulness that, that she can you know use to assert herself when pushed too far. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole movie is kind of about her, you know, what does it take to actually push her too far to the point where that sort of protective guarded instinct kicks in for her. Yeah, I mean, she has some very strong moments where she does kind of draw the line, and and it's a very hard thing for her to do, given that she is, you know, groomed, basically, as a 14-year-old in this, you know, highly oppressive and also highly seductive environment. I really like this film a lot. I do think it's one of her better films. I love the the rigor of it and the size of it. It feels like a kind of a chamber piece and, and, and that sense of suffocation that can kind of come through with the whole gilded cage thing. I think it, it's almost brought out more intensely here than, than almost anything else she's done. And just like being in Graceland, this uh, estate and it, it all feeling so very, very small, so much like a prison, I, you know, and, and again, you're just, you're so Coppola does such a wonderful job of locking you into this one very fixed perspective and making you have to think about what she can really do in that situation, which is not, not a whole lot as it happens. All that's fascinating. I think that uh, Elvis, the way Elvis is depicted in that relationship, the way that he kind of manipulates her is so beautifully rendered and so subtle and kind of insinuating and creepy, but yet, yet not over the top. I mean, I think there's a way that, that you could have depicted him as this predatory sort of grooming monster. And I, I don't, I think, I think the film is a lot more subtle than that. And to where you do, all those qualities are very much present, but in a way that feels so persuasive and kind of like kind of gets under your skin. I, I, you know, and, and also, you know, you also kind of get that just, this is a tribute to Jacob Alardi's performance. Like you really get, this otherworldly charisma that just is like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. when he's in a room, he's just, he is, he is at the center of the room. He's got, he's got that height for one, I guess in this case, but like you get it, you get that, he, that there's a, there's a power that he has that's so overwhelming and it's always there. <laughs> and she's so small, quite literally in comparison to that. I mean, it's, it's like a Bambi versus Godzilla situation. <laughs> well, and he's he's so mercurial too, which I think makes the charisma become a little like sinister and and scary. And actually, maybe this is a place to bring up one of my favorite scenes, if not my favorite scene, and a scene that almost carries off the the shift I was talking about, like not feeling an, enough of, which is the scene where she uh, they have a big fight and she tells him like, okay, well then I'm gonna leave. And he like immediately says, no, 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 come back. And it's like the moment that she realizes she can flip the manipulation on him. And like, that feels like a really important moment in their relationship. And I think, I don't want to say like, this is what the movie should have done. But I think like, if the movie had like, basically gone from there right to the end, it might have worked. I think where it got a little confusing for me is like, when we jump 
10 years ahead and there's this like kind of sexual assault moment in Vegas and that kind of becomes the catalyst of her leaving. Maybe that's like how it actually happened in real life. But I think just in terms of their dynamic, that moment where she kind of flips the script on him and realizes that basically she just says the opposite of what he wants and he'll come back around uh, sort of uh, reverse psychology, basically, and how easy it is for her to kind of make that happen in that moment. That was really striking to me. And I liked that kind of evolution of their dynamic a lot. I I liked a lot of the evolution, but at the same time, I on some level, I feel like this movie, like if I was to describe it to anybody, I think it would end up sounding naturally more cohesive and and thorough than it plays out on screen. I had a lot of problems with this movie. And in part, it's just like I watched this movie before rewatching Marie Antoinette. So I, I won't say that at the time I was watching it, it compared poorly to Marie Antoinette's style and charisma. But rewatching Marie Antoinette afterwards, I was like, no, nah, this, this might be a little of what this movie was missing is like a really distinctive point of view as opposed to feeling like a story that not many people would tell, but told in a way that many people might tell it. There's just not as much distinctive or, you know, voicey about Priscilla compared to Marie Antoinette. And the parts of it that are voicey to me are just in which parts she chooses to focus on and to somewhat, to some degree in the casting, which is very important. But then particularly in the way she collapses the ending. And it was the third act of the movie just did not work for me. There's so much missing. There's so many steps and stages missing. And I, I'm i with Genevieve. There were way too many parts of this movie where I just didn't feel like I knew enough about who Priscilla was. I knew how she was being presented and I knew why she was being presented that way. But I didn't know who she was under it all. And I think part of that might be because she doesn't. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she's picked up so early in life. She's under so much control from her family. And she goes directly from being kind of a protected and controlled 14-year-old at home to being the house pet of a very successful person who she very much wants to, you know, impress and please. And I think the arc of the movie is her deciding that she wants to be a person, but I just don't think there's enough of that. I think there's way too much watching her be sad and baffled and trying to figure out how to get any of what she wants, uh, which she can't because she doesn't have any power in the situation. And then in the same way, Marie Antoinette kind of starts accelerating the second Marie starts having children. This movie accelerates the second she realizes she does have some power in the relationship. And then it blitzes past all of the things that might have been narratively satisfying in terms of her finding herself or her, her way or her path. And by the end, it's just going so recklessly fast. Mm. It leaves behind, for me, any sense of who this character is at the end. It's elliptical. It's, come on, Tasha. I don't know. It's I, I, I like I like where it gets gets us. And I think the other, there's some parallelisms here that I think that are worth, worthwhile to think about, too, with regard to Elvis and, and how the way he treats Priscilla 
is the way he is also feeling himself in his his own treatment for by from the, the, his management from the the, the colonel from from his. It's really see. interesting that we know. Yeah, it's yeah. super interesting that we never see the colonel. But, but, he, but yeah. his presence is there, and he has to like he has to. Yeah. He has to do what he's told. He has to be at these places. He he has this career in Hollywood, which is where he has these affairs and stuff. But it's also where he is not doing the type of acting that he wants to do. And he's and he's getting hung up. He's lost in prescription pills. He's he he ends ends up in this fairly sad residency in Vegas. And it's, you know he is also trapped as well. And there comes a point where the, those two narratives, these two characters start to feel very similar in a lot of the ways in which he, you know, the one thing about Priscilla is maybe that's one aspect of his life that he can feels like he can exert control over because in other aspects of his life, he has no control whatsoever. Well, including actually marrying her, which I, I, I wasn't Keith, I'm I'm looking to you for confirmation here, but wasn't, didn't the Colonel basically tell him that he had to marry Priscilla because of like a morals clause in, in this contract, I believe. I think that's it. Yeah. It, it was... Yeah. Yeah. Which led to that very sad wedding <laughs> and, and glum looking wedding photos that we see uh, reenacted here. But but yeah, like the the colonel is such a guiding force here that the choice to, to leave him off screen and leave that parallelism that Scott is talking about backgrounded is is interesting. And I think maybe in, in, in the wake of Baz Luhrmann's Elvis and Tom Hanks's Colonel uh, was, yeah. was a little bit of a relief. Uh, yeah, you, you like, know? like, like I, was, I was thinking like, I'm kind of relieved that, that, uh, that Sofia Coppola left all of Tom Hanks's performance on the cutting room floor. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, it is, it is a very like a, a kind of important factor here that uh, interesting to just kind of leave it for the most part out. Yeah, to me, the whole movie is about being locked into her perspective and like mm-hmm. kind of being, you know, as we kind of talked about before on the on the on the inside looking out and all these things are happening in Elvis's career and they just kind of come to her things happen and she has to deal with it. It was like, okay, Elvis is into these sort of like really questionable spiritual spir- books about spirituality. <laughs> well, that's just my life now. Or, you know, <laughs> you know, Elvis and the boys just kind of want to tool around the yard and have, have you know, yuck it up. I guess I got to be one of the boys now. And, it, and it's like. So much of it is, of her life is out of her control. So her, her her movements are fairly restricted as well. I mean, she does go to Hollywood that one time, but you kind of get the sense that she's just there at Graceland. That's that's her life, and she can't even talk to the women her own age that are working. In the- uh, she couldn't make friends. That was so hard for me. Uh, uh, like that was so hard to watch. And it, I noticed at the end, right before she breaks it off with Elvis, when they're kind of like living separate lives in Vegas, like she has friends. She's out to dinner with her with her girlfriends you know and just like having peers it seems to be a big part of her you know developing the agency and the fortitude to leave and that was denied to her at graceland a lot of the movie is just about crushing blows being dealt to her like just sort of the sense of here yet again is another thing that you're being given as a bribe to stay here or another thing that's being taken away from you as a result of you staying here. The moment where she's on the phone with Elvis and she mentions that she might be taking a part-time job and he says, that's not going to work for me. You Mm -hmm. have to be there when I call is for me was the most crushing thing in the movie. It's a moment where you realize that not only does he expect her to be a very specific thing for him, but he expects her to be at 24 seven. 
she exists for his convenience and he's willing to give her anything on a very small menu of things that he thinks should satisfy her, you know, clothing and a a beautiful house and a cute little pet puppy that he presents to her within a teeny tiny cage that's just unquestionably representative of her herself in her teeny tiny little house cage. He's willing to give her all of these things and like his companionship and, and regard and intimacy, not sexual intimacy, but like a a close-up personal aspect that nobody else gets. But in return, she has to do nothing with her life except sit by the phone and wait for him to need her, to wait for him to come to a point where he wants to call her, where that's the thing that he wants to do at the moment, rather than playing around with his bro friends or flirting with and or making out with Anne Margaret or shooting a film or being on tour. She's an appliance. You know, not even an accessory. She's something that he expects to be able to plug into whenever he wants and get back a very specific kind of like validation and grounding. And it's only a reciprocal relationship if she's getting something out of it that she wants. And for a while she is and then she isn't. I think that there's a lot resonant here. I just think it's very awkwardly told, leaving a ton of questions that don't end up feeling intriguingly ambiguous so much as they feel just like narrative holes. And maybe some of that is just, I've been told, I have not read Elvis and Me. It's sitting at the library waiting for me, even as we speak. I'm really curious to read it, but I've been told this is a very faithful adaptation. And I suspect that the holes that we're seeing are just areas that she herself didn't delve into. And that any interaction that she had with Colonel Tom Parker, for instance, might just not be here because it's something she doesn't talk about in her memoir. I am certainly very curious whether he sat down and had come to Jesus talks with her about you have to dress this way or you have to act this way or you have to do this thing or that thing in public or if it was all passed through Elvis the way we see in the movie. But I suspect it might just be something she doesn't talk about in the book. So we don't get it here. And where where is Leslie Nielsen in all this? (laughs) (laughs) That's the question I want. That's the question I want answered. Why? Why did why did the film have to end before we get to Leslie Nielsen? Why? So I, I brought this up at the end of our Marie Antoinette conversation again because I thought we'd be blitzing by it too quickly if we brought it up as a connection. But I feel like the big question here in this movie becomes why did she stay with him as long as she did? What was she getting out of it? Was she in love with him? Was she thinking that she was in love with him because she was 14 and had a crush on a a star? What are we meant to get out of this relationship from her end? We, We see very clearly what he gets out of it. She is just present. And this is a very external movie. We, I just don't think we get much sense of her internality. So I'm curious how each of you read that, because it, it strikes me as something that could be very open-ended. How we read why she doesn't leave? Or what she's feeling during a lot of this for him. Well, maybe I'll start with how, how why she doesn't leave. I think there's this tremendous pressure to you know, not be the the woman who left Elvis. I mean, I, I imagine that it's, it's, there's a, there's a, you know, you don't want to be treated that way, but also I think you're in a marriage that you want to make work. I mean, I do think that there is some genuine affection there uh, as twisted as it gets fairly quickly in their relationship. But also, I mean, you know, you, you got to think of it as someone who's, had this, you know, I, I'm Elvis's woman and later wife has been like her primary focus 
for much of her life. I mean, certainly, I, I, you want to say uh, for her entire adult life, but that doesn't really even cover all of, all the life that, that, that it's part of. Yeah, I mean, she's living a fairy tale, you know, like this is the ultimate wish fulfillment for a teenage girl, you know, there's that amazing shot early in the film when he's leaving Germany to go back to the States and uh, they're in the car together and she gets out of the car and just like kind of melts into a mass of other screaming fans. You know, she's it's a great you know, shot. She's, she's like, in yeah. theory, no, no different from any of them, but he picked her and that feeling of being chosen by the most famous you know, beautiful man, you're Prince Charming, basically, you know, like you don't walk away from that so easily, especially not when you're that young and that impressionable and your life has been shaped to a certain extent by this person and and their music uh, just growing up. So, you know, I think she didn't leave because it was really hard. Like, like, how do you explain that? You where know, where do you go too? I yeah, mean, and, yeah, yeah, right. And Who she, is she without? Especially him? if you haven't had a job because your boyfriend won't let you yeah. have one. Right, and and like she didn't have the tools, you know, uh, to talk about what was happening to her. We didn't talk about grooming. We, you know, like it, to the degree that anyone raised an eyebrow of her being 14 when, when they met, like it's kind of smoothed over uh, by history. So I think it, you can certainly categorize this as an abusive relationship before the point where it got like physically abusive to the extent that it did. But I don't think she or anyone around her would have the kind of capacity to to talk about it or think about it that way. It would just be her leaving Elvis. Who does that? You know, all of this makes just so much sense on a like a rational basis or a justification basis, a, a filling in the gaps basis. I just wish I felt a little more of it in the film. I wish I felt a little more of her emotions in a way that wasn't just her kind of being forlorn in a fairly homogenous way throughout the movie. I wish I felt more of her fandom when they met and she's Mm. just sitting there shyly across the room looking at him, but not looking at him with anything that feels like hunger or embarrassment or excitement. You know, there's a bidability to her that I think is not at all unlikely or uncommon for a 14-year-old girl, particularly a very sheltered one who seemingly was very under her parents' thumb. When he first meets her and a few minutes into their conversation asks her to go upstairs with him, she has every reason to expect that he wants to have sex. And she doesn't look scared and she doesn't look thrilled. Mm -hmm. She biddably does what she's told. And there's so much of that throughout the movie that for me... Again, I just I would have liked to have seen more of more of the personality coming to the surface in ways that would let me see the difference between the reticence of a 14 year old girl and the weariness of a 30 something who's never had a real life of her own and is getting to the point where where she really wants one. I just I wanted I guess, more variability. The visual cues that we get throughout Marie Antoinette that let us know that 20 years is passing, I just didn't feel as much of that here in terms of the performance. And that's not to say anything against Kaylee Spaney because she she does bring like a real charisma and vulnerability to this movie that's that's great. 
but I just don't give the I just don't think the material gives her enough to work with. Well, I think it does. I I think I I agree, but I still overall enjoyed this movie. And I enjoyed those those two performances, because to your your point, Tasha, like the movie does rely a lot on just those performances and sort of a degree of inherent charisma on on both of their parts to get across what is not in the script necessarily. I just I felt completely well, propelled through this movie by what she was feeling, Tasha. I I really I, I you know it, surprise we very strongly disagree on this. I, I feel like you're I feel extremely locked into her perspective. I feel like how overwhelmed she is right from the start of the, with him, uh, his, his star presence, the fact that he is you know the you know pretty much the biggest star on earth. You know, I, I, no fourteen year old is going to be able to withstand that, and then you meet you meet him, and he's larger than life. And I just, you know, and and he's also he's, showing he's also being vulnerable to her, too. And I sure. think that is, is like, you know, talking about his mom dying and everything like there's a I'm sure there's yeah. a degree of like, oh, he can only be himself with me, you know, yeah, well, that, for, for that sure. Old, and uh, I think it's probably yeah. actually true. I mean, there's there, there's a tremendous amount of intimacy that's established here between the two from the beginning that is special and has to certainly if you're a 14 year old or, or anyone who falls for, you know, I mean, for, first love for anyone it's like the uh, the level of intensity is so extreme and, and she doesn't get to like even learn from this experience it just she just has to continue to li- live through it and 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 all of its you know evolution or lack thereof i, I just think there's a lot here and and I, and I felt like it i guess the book character was richer and more more readable and variable i guess than than you would felt uh, tasha but because uh, uh, I, I i do like this film quite a lot well, there is another movie that we could compare this one to that also features a 14-year-old who isn't really capable of expressing some of her, her bigger anxieties about her relationship with a far more powerful man. And yet, uh, to my mind at least, ends up expressing that in a, a more a more visual and more emphatic way in a lot of ways. We'll be back right after this break to talk about the connections between Priscilla and Marie Antoinette. Like Aunt Margaret? Scooby? That's it, woman. I don't want to hear another word. Was there something you're hiding? I don't have a goddamn thing to hide. You're just being too goddamn aggressive in the manner. You know, I think you should go see your parents for a little while. What? I'm not going! I think you should. Matter of fact, I'll help you. Start packing. Joe! Joe, get some on the next flight out of here. She's going to go see her parents for a little while. Get her ticket out of here. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things that they have in common. Uh, Genevieve, I think you were the one that said in in Slack when we were laying out some of these uh, comparison points, is is this the most point for point uh, <laughs> comparison series that we've ever had? I think that was Keith who said that, but it was also me who suggested this pairing before seeing Priscilla just kind of based on the knowledge that there would be so many point for point comparisons. It's kind of nuts. I mean, yeah. this is the longest list of connections we've ever I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm just going to keep attributing everything to Genevieve until I hit one that's uh, that actually was Genevieve. You were the one that brought up the fact that both of these movies have like misbehaving puppies that the <laughs> inappropriate uh, protagonist is uh, really, really emotionally attached to. 
Yeah, or they're, they're not. It's not even that they're misbehaving, but they're improper in the scenario in which our, our protagonist has found herself. Of course, we already talked about relinquishing poor mops at the border of France. And then in Priscilla, you know, Elvis gifts her this puppy shortly after she arrives at Graceland and she is scolded for playing with it on the lawn, like in view of other people. You know, it's like it's a. You, you can have this puppy, but you can't display yourself with the puppy. I don't know. It's But yeah, puppy-based scolding in both films. <laughs> that was actually a point in Priscilla that I was pretty curious about in terms of what she was feeling. We start that scene with her already out on the lawn of Graceland playing with the puppy in view of the gates. And given how big the grounds are, there are plenty of other places, a more secretive places she could play with the puppy. Oh, we never find Tasha, out. You're telling, in that you're telling, scene. you're going to tell her where she's allowed to play with her uh, dog. <laughs> well, she saying? she is informed that she's not allowed to to play okay. with the dog. It, basically, in view of the gates, she's informed that uh, you know she's just she's not allowed to be there by a relative of the family who is actually not identified in that moment, and then doesn't come up again as uh, apart from just kind of being in the background. I can't help but wonder if she was there on purpose, though. I mean, if Mm -hmm. you were the consort of one of the most famous and attractive men in the world and he wasn't around and you were bored, but at least you had like this adorable dog that he had given you, wouldn't it be tempting to position yourself uh, where the the public eye could see you, where the paparazzi and the the hangers on, where especially if you're at this point, you know, a 15 year old girl, wouldn't it be tempting to hang out where all of the people on the outside who desperately want to be on the inside can see you and then nonchalantly not notice them hungering to be you as you sit here and play with your new puppy? I really wanted that scene to be a little more about what she was feeling. But no, it's just about her being told, no, don't do that. I mean, that is one of the really interesting ambiguities of Priscilla that I feel we don't the film doesn't really land one way or the other, but the the degree to which, especially when she is so young, she enjoys the notoriety or at least gets a little thrill out of it. You know, there's a little scene of her cheating on an exam at school by uh, offering her classmate to come come to Elvis's house, you know. I want um, so badly to know whether that paid off and whether that girl got to go to a party at I Elvis's know. house. All, all, all the scenes at the school are, are really interesting to parse, like what she's feeling, you know, because there there are these whispers and people are gossiping behind her back. And, you know, it's, it's again, very direct connection to Marie Antoinette as far as like the whispers at court and the whispers at, at school, you know. But there is sort of a, a suggestion in the performance and in just the way she carries herself that she, like, she's not necessarily devastated by these whisperings, you know? I, I think there is maybe a part of her that, like I said, maybe is getting a little bit of, of a thrill out of the, the notoriety. And I think what you're suggesting, Tasha, as far as her playing on the lawn with the dog in view of the gates could play into that interpretation as well. Again, I just wish we had a little more idea of what was going on with her. Both of these characters, this uh, being an, an actual connection, don't really have anyone to talk to about what they're feeling. Marie Antoinette ends up with friends a lot quicker than Priscilla does, a lot earlier in the film. 
But we don't really see her talking about her bedroom problems with Louis. We don't really see her talking about the expectations that have been forced on her. She keeps the conversations safe and frivolous. There's a lot of gossip, particularly about DeBerry. And it's kind of coldly fun, I think, to watch her mean girl at uh, AGR Argento's DeBerry primarily just because of the sense of like, it it literally is the only power that she has. She has the power to spend a great deal of money on shoes and cakes and dresses. And she has the power to be kind of catty and, and mean and exclusive to the king's courtesan uh, mistress, who the whole court kind of despises everybody except the king. It's just a tiny little bit of power she has. And, you know, even that is kind of taken away from her when she's told, like, it's scandalous that you're not accepting her. You have to go speak to her (laughs) so that she can speak to you. And then she goes and says, there are a lot of people at Versailles today (laughs) and fulfills her obligations. Very, very fun little scene. Which is apparently historically accurate. Yeah. That's basically what happened. (laughs) Certainly sounds like it would have been. But there's just the degree to which I think neither of them is really able to unburden themselves. And in both cases, I think that robs us maybe of a little bit of perspective of what's going on with them. But in both cases, it's a a way of showing how powerless they are. They both have insecurities that they're just not in a position to air. You know, if either of them were to admit that there were flaws in the situation that they find themselves in, they would be opening themselves up to to scandal and possibly like disapproval from the men in their lives, possibly disapproval from the courtiers around them. So they have to keep it all bottled up. Both of them just have to hang on to all of these emotions and to whatever degree they can pretend to the world that they don't exist and that they're living a much happier lifestyle than they actually are because that's the only way to win. There are a lot of connections. Like I'm looking at this list. Uh, we could, we could, we, this could be our longest episode ever if we, if we could go through all of them. <laughs> but I wonder if one thing we should talk about is, is the biggest way these films are different, which is stylistically. Marie Antoinette is, is a pop and brightly colored, and, and it really moves. And and Priscilla is muted and slow, and you know, really quiet. A very quiet film, despite about you know, being about married to a rock star. So how do those different approaches uh, play into each of these films? I was so excited when Priscilla started and we got the feet in the shag carpet. So I'm like, <laughs> yes, this, give it to me, Sofia Coppola. Give me that tactile opulence that, that I, I, I know you can uh, give me. And immediately like, yes, Marie Antoinette, Graceland is Versailles. I get it. And then Priscilla definitely has lots of sort of that feeling of lush opulence but it it just the, the palette's different you know it's it's darker over overall you know it's more muted overall like we do have some bright fireworksy scenes you know here and there and graceland is brightly lit but it's not necessarily i don't want to say garish because i wouldn't call marie antoinette garish but it is it does have a very poppy palette. It pops visually. And Priscilla 
doesn't, which is so weird because of the era this is in is like associated with just color and pattern and everything. But then that brings us back to the thing in Priscilla where he doesn't want her wearing patterns, you know, like he wants her kind of muted, you know, he's, it seems like he, he desires her to kind of be in this box stylistically. And the film, I think, kind of follows suits. It's not too rambunctious. It's not breaking the rules like we were talking about the way Marie Antoinette does. And I think, Tasha, maybe that's why you and I are kind of are feeling a little cooler toward her as a protagonist, because I think with Coppola in particular, so much of the emotion of the characters comes through just in the way that they are visually presented on screen. And Priscilla is, again, definitely lush and opulent and, and beautiful in its own way, but it is a little more reserved stylistically. I do wonder how much of that that comes from, as you say, you know, not from the aesthetic of the the era, but of the aesthetic specifically of these characters in this era. Because I know from the, the Vanity Fair oral history that a lot of the look of Marie Antoinette came from looking at actual dress designs and, and fabrics and patterns and looking at the the room decor and looking at not so much paintings because the paintings as they say uh, in that that piece are very much fictionalized and and meant to flatter the uh, people being portrayed but you know the actual furnishings and and decor that they still have all kind of contribute to this like busy luxurious bright pastel environment Whereas if you look at pictures of Priscilla of the era, as you say, she's she's wearing very simple things in terms of color, the heavy, heavy eyeliner, the gigantic wigs that just completely dwarf her head and body. Like, I, I wonder how much of the aesthetic was just sort of drawn out of the attempt to in, surround these two women with things that, that match their environment, that match their historical look. But there's also a degree to which Priscilla being shut away in Graceland makes the film a lot more focused on, not bland, but certainly much less Rococo interiors. I think of it as just a much visually darker film, because when I think about the moments that most struck me emotionally, it's her standing there on the phone being told she's not allowed to have a job in a darkened room with all of the blinds drawn. It's her having a, a playful pillow fight with Elvis in their bedroom that turns sour because he gets more and more aggressive until he hurts her. And she finally stalks away saying, you always have to win. You refuse to fight unless you can win. It's her, you know, just kind of sulking from room to room because she has nowhere to go and, and nothing to do. Whereas when I think about Marie Antoinette, I think about her on the lawn, her, you know, walking through vast gardens or huge airy rooms or hanging out in the, the Petit Trenanon, like surrounded by windows. It's just a, a much airier and more outdoorsy film in a lot of ways. So it, it feels brighter and like there's more space even leaving out the contrast between the pastel palette and the, you know, kind of shades drawn, dim, stuck inside a drawing room with nowhere to go palette. Everything smells like cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and hairspray. There's so many shots yeah. of Aquanet hairspray being applied to beehives in this movie. 
Uh, I mean, Versailles is a pretty big place. I mean, it's large. It's got a lot of got the grounds and whatnot. I was just there over the summer. Big place. Um, uh, though, uh, the other thing too is, I think you know, as much as we we talk about the lack of agency that both of these women are sort of cursed with, it, it, Marie Antoinette does have some amount a flex here she spends she makes decisions she can make decisions i there the, you, you feel like it's a much smaller world that priscilla is dealing with and, and that the film reinforces i mean i you know I, i've never been to graceland but my thought of graceland as being you know this tourist attraction is that it's everything is just huge big and garish and colorful and you know you know it's like a tourist attraction that's where you go Surprisingly, not actually. It's it's, it's not. <laughs> it, it's it's smaller, right, Keith? Yeah, the yeah. Place it's it's a, it's a house. I mean, it's, it's a luxurious house, and it's got some very of its era decorating choices in it. It's not the out of control living inside a theme park kind of place you might think it it, it would be if you haven't been there. You know, I think that that, that its smallness is something that is emphasized strongly, I guess, in Priscilla, and uh, it, it's something the film kind of. I think sticks to quite effectively. Well, speaking of smallness, one of the things that really strikes me about Priscilla is how much it's emphasized how <laughs> small Priscilla is compared to Elvis. An the- incredible height differential. Every time they, the full body shot of the two of them together, it's like, yes. You, yeah, I that, love and it. that that isn't <laughs> quite historically accurate. Like it's mm-hmm. it's exaggerated, but it's exaggerated for effect. Like there's a scene that we get in one of the press photos that was sent out where she's standing against a wall uh, at at home, and Elvis is standing over her with an arm out, like casually resting against the wall behind her as he's sort of leaning over her, and she just feels so trapped. In the movie, it's a pretty casual conversation, but the body language is just, you know, he's he's not only towering over her, he's kind of cornering her against a wall. And the various scenes that we have of nakedness in Marie Antoinette, when she's being stripped of everything she brought from Austria in order to be passed over to France, or when she's standing naked in the bedroom waiting for everybody who, you know, my feeling is if you show up late to the vestments ceremony, you don't get to interrupt the vestment ceremony. But that's just me. The way that nakedness is used in Marie Antoinette to convey vulnerability, size is used in Priscilla to convey vulnerability. And at both of these films, I think, just have a very conscious sense of the weakness is not quite the right word, but I'm looking for a, a good synonym for, for vulnerability, just like how how physically unprepossessing these two women are compared to the size and, and weight of the history around them. It's also tied up in their youth, especially in the case of Priscilla, where, you know, we've mentioned several times now, these are both 14-year-old protagonists. But, you know, as we discussed in the first half, Marie and Louis were essentially the same age. There was only a year or two between them, whereas there was a 10-year age gap between Priscilla and Elvis. And I think having that big height differential between them underlines that fact strongly, whereas in Marie Antoinette, Kristen Dunst and Jason Schwartzman are are pretty much the same size physically and, and Jason Schwartzman does, you know, kind of hold himself uh, meekly, I guess, and certainly at the beginning in a way that translates both of their youth and inexperience in all things. But specifically with Priscilla and Elvis, you can't not be aware of just how young she is in comparison to him 
when you see that height difference, even though height obviously has nothing to do with age, does she looks like a child? You know, even when she is legally a woman, she still looks like a child next to him. And I think the film wants you to never really forget that element of their relationship. I, I do want to point out with, with, with Spaney's performance when I first saw her, I was like, are they going to have two different actresses play, play Priscilla? Because like, she's so convincing as a 14-year-old. And, and and she really, I think one of the strengths of the film is the way that she very believably ages into a unhappy woman from a teenager. Well, part of that transformation comes from the way she's, you know, dressed and and made up and her her hairdressing changes throughout this movie. Her transition from the early teens ponytail to this elaborate beehive uh, eyeliner look that she sported to going back to a natural hair color and a and much more natural way of wearing makeup as she gets older and kind of reasserts her own identity, I think is very telling. But that's something that both of these movies do. You know, we we see a great deal of shopping montage in Marie Antoinette or acquisition montage, however you want to think of it. But we also see her getting her makeup done, getting her hair done, getting her, her toenails done by a servant. There's the, you know, hair person that comes in to do elaborate stuff with her her giant vertical hair going on. Like both of these films are very aware of the nature of clothing, makeup, hair, uh, and other presentation as a way of claiming a particular kind of feminine identity. And both of them use all of this kind of stylization as a way of describing where the protagonists are in terms of their personality, in terms of who is controlling them or where they're being allowed to control themselves, in terms of how they're deciding to handle self-expression to the degree that they're allowed it. I mean, with Marie Antoinette, she drove the economy to a certain extent, like with her fashion choices, you know, like, like she she set the trends and the tailors and the hairdressers and not just at court, but ostensibly like beyond, even though we don't really see that in the film. But like the fashions and the trends that she follows has like a huge trickle down effect for the people making those gowns and wigs and whatnot, and all of the people at court who buy them. So there is is some really literal power in her fashion choices here. You know, like like I said in the first part, like to a degree that is her job other than producing heirs. Whereas in Priscilla, you know, we have these shopping montages, but Elvis is making the decisions. Elvis is telling her she can't wear prints, you know, until she wears a print and kicks him to the curb. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, like that when she does wear a print at the end, like that is her like finding power, expressing power in her fashion in a way that earlier in the film it's kind of taken from her by Elvis's decisions and preferences as far as how she quote unquote expresses herself when she's with him. As a kind of fun point of trivia, uh, speaking of Marie Antoinette driving the the French economy in terms of driving the trends and and being the 
the person that fashion emulated. The movie itself did the same thing. One of the things that came up as I was reading uh, more and more about this film is just the degree to which a lot of famous fashion designers had very heavily Marie Antoinette themed like fall lines oh, after yeah, this movie sure. came out. It was a big trend. Uh, just different different ways of interpreting the Versailles look really heavily made it into that year's fashion shows, which I think is kind of fun. You, do you think Priscilla is going to have the same impact? No. <laughs> I really, <laughs> really hope not. that the beehive uh, look <laughs> does not come back. I'm I'm indifferent to the eyeliner look. Uh, <laughs> cat's eye eyeliner has been a thing for quite a while now, but like mm, the wigs that look like they, they weigh about 40 pounds, I, I, I hope that they're not coming back. Maybe prints are going to go out of fashion for a while, though. <laughs> Well, what else should we talk about? Both of these women are stuck in marriages where they can't get laid. And it, it kind of sucks for both of them for uh, a variety of reasons. I, I think it's interesting that both of them are just very much trying to get their boyfriends slash husbands to make sweet, sweet love to them. And there's not a whole lot of understanding in one case of, of why it isn't happening. I, I think for... The whole idea that historians don't quite know what was going on with uh, Louis XVI refusing to have sex with Marie leaves the movie in a state of ambiguity. But in terms of Elvis just repeatedly saying, like, no, we, that's not what our relationship is. I'm not comfortable with that. Some very cynical part of me wonders a little bit if that's true, as mm -hmm. opposed to being something that Priscilla said in order to make Elvis not look like the 24-year-old that had sex with a 14-year-old. <laughs> no, but... Elvis had a bunch of hang-ups. <laughs> I mean, uh, not not that not having sex with an underage person is is, is a hang-up, but, but I mean, I think it kind of gets the sense of it's all kind of tied up with his ideas toward about motherhood and, and relationship <laughs> with his own mother, and, and it's never explicitly stated it in the film, but uh, which is more interested in, in the, the the not having sex before marriage, but there was a lot of not having sex after childbirth because Elvis had a thing mm -hmm. where he couldn't really be with or had a hard time being with women who who were mothers. So yeah, yeah. He, he seems to have a big virgin whore hang up. Yeah. just in the movie, yeah, virgin and, mother whore apparently. Yeah. yeah, that's all good context. However it is, it leaves both of these women in the same place of one of them is specifically looking to do her job by the court, by her her very domineering mother, which is another connection these movies have, is very domineering and controlling parents. The other just wants sex. And it's <laughs> honestly kind of refreshing to see a movie where a teen girl is like advocating for her own desires and her own sexuality and pushing back against a, a controlling man, even if in this case it means a 16-year-old telling a 26-year-old, no, seriously, we should have sex when he's not interested. Yeah, it's, I guess, refreshing in both cases that, you know, sex is perceived from the female perspective with no real sense of fear, even though they both have no direct experience <laughs> with it. But they both seem to have a pretty, I guess, pragmatic uh, relationship with, with, with sex. And in Priscilla, in particular, the fact that she does seem to want sex with him and she does seem to be a, a you know a sexual creature to uh, an extent it makes that 
betrayal at the end of the film when he tries to force himself on her, I think, hit even harder, you know, in the context of years and years of trying to get his interest in this regard. As far as like his psychology in that moment, like, I don't think we have the time to, to, to plummet. But the fact that sex is not a thing to be feared by Priscilla until that moment, I think, makes that moment feel important. One of the more curious omissions from the film, though, is the fact that she was having an affair with Fair, Mike Stone, yeah. the, the karate instructor, which is not even really confirmed in the film itself, if I remember correctly, but it's kind of like... I think it's very gently implied. Right, I mean, but kind of I, 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 know I that, certainly but, felt that it was there. Yeah, but I, that also kind of gives motivation to, and again, not justifying this, but it gives motivation to his sexual hostility, mm-hmm. uh, given that his wife was, was having uh, an affair, which is a little unclear in the film. But I think it, maybe it just sort of expects a certain amount of, of knowledge of the, of the story going in, perhaps. So that's a really good segue. We could we could be here for another hour doing all of these comparisons. I'll just run down really quickly. Again, both of these movies have protagonists whose parents negotiate in order to put them in a relationship as part of the controlling aspect of it. Both of them have anachronistic music. Uh, there's a, a really fun touch with that in Priscilla that I found out from, from Pop Culture Happy Hour that we might tag in at the very end of this because it's fun. Both of them are about women having a child in order to confirm their worth and confirm the relationship that they're in. Both of them have these these big arcs of a very young person coming into a relationship with no control and gradually asserting themselves and in one case leaving the nest, in another case making the conscious decision to not leave the nest. Both of these movies have uh, men with with dude entourages that they like to hang out with while they're neglecting their wives or uh, or girlfriends. And another one that just occurred to me in this conversation moments ago is they both have the female protagonists uh, pursuing an extramarital affair later on in in life. We didn't even talk about Furson in Marie Antoinette, but uh, I I gather he was a pretty substantial part of of her life. He's not that substantial part of the film, but, you know, on on balance enough that I think you get a sense that he was definitely around quite a bit. Jamie Dornan in his yep. first role. Uh, yep. And also, you know, yeah, the, the movie Marie Antoinette is much like Priscilla, not entirely specific about whether she had an affair with him. Mm-hmm. Apparently, that also is a likely yeah. thing historically, right. but not they were 100% close friends. certain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. But Same way yeah. Priscilla was close friends with her karate instructor, I guess. <laughs> I think in both cases, there's maybe just a sense of, you know that this woman is unhappy. You know that she's unfulfilled. You know that there's this very handsome person paying her court that she has a, a relationship with. You can read it as they're having sex or you can just read it as they want to be having sex. But either way, it's a very similar relationship. But all of these are things that we we don't have another hour to to dig into. So I, I, I want to. I'm, do- I'm fine. I'm good. Let's go. <laughs> let's let's just no. We have to speed right toward the end. Just go right to the the last one. Tasha, give it no, to Keith. Us. You have no power here. I am the host of this episode, and I am in control. So I'm just going to leave you on the shelf while I exert my power. Yeah, zipping to the end. The both of these movies have extremely compressed third acts that just zip by years without 
any real sense of what's going on off screen while while big important historical events happen in the lives of the men in these movies we zip past a bunch of kind of impressionistic hiccups in in the life of the woman that's at the center and for me that's where both of these movies kind of falter that's where both of these movies kind of lose their way a little bit it's like they're saying the part where the woman comes into her own and and becomes more of a person is much less important than the part where she's like suffering and isolated and lonely. And it's to me a flaw in both of these films. Scott, you are shaking your head as you so often do when I am flapping that, my is jaws. That what's happening, or is it just all kind of falling apart <laughs> in both? You know, <laughs> I mean, I just I just think it's I think I think I think the world is just outside um, activities, outside forces are what dictate these third acts, not not necessarily our greater understanding or realization on the part of our protagonist. I get it. I, I actually feel like the compression of Priscilla is more sensible in a way than the compression of, of Marie Antoinette because it feels just more purposefully elliptical rather than merely rushed. But I think they're both they both have some, you know, really compelling aspects to them. So Well I will say that one thing about both of these third acts is that they make a lot more sense if you know the history involved. You know, if you're able to fill in the blanks, she's only going to she's only going to give you a piece. She's only give you going to give you that's the that's the beauty of the way she makes movies is like she's not going to give you that stuff because she has the discipline to say that's outside my point of view. That is not all of this information that you might be craving that might be a part of history. That's not the point of view I'm reflecting in this movie, so I'm not going to show it to you. You're going to have to you're going to have to deal with that. <laughs> So I like that. She's here for the sad girl, not the girl boss, you know, and I I respect that. And I think for the most part, I like it. It does, I think, in the case of Priscilla, maybe throw me off balance with her film. So as far as like when I'm walking away from it, like, what was I supposed to take from this movie? And I'm not always sure because the resolution is so, as, as Scott says, elliptical, and the, the power of the movie is all in the parts where she is very sad and powerless. <laughs> Again, like I said, I respect that. I, for the most part, like it, but it does, I think, sometimes make me feel a little odd that like the thing I'm meant to enjoy and respond to most is this woman suffering very beautifully. Yeah, to to take it in your terms, Genevieve, if a story is going to be about sad girl becoming girl boss, I would like more, a little more girl boss and a little less sad girl. Like I would like a little more payoff for all the sad. I would like a little more vision of what it feels like to live through the things that they've lived through and become fulfilled. I don't want that to be the part of the story that kind of gets hand waved away and like, and then a, a bunch of stuff happened and it was better. Although it wasn't really all that much better for Marie Antoinette after that moment. But <laughs> no. you, yeah, you get what I'm saying. I kind of love the ends of both of these movies. So I mean, we haven't talked about the end of Priscilla, but but the I found that driving away, obviously you have the Dolly Parton version of, mm-hmm. of I Will Always Love You playing. So you're automatically having your heart jerked around. But I found that this just really this overwhelming sense of like all that she'd lost, like everything was built around this relationship. And just like the years that she disappeared in Graceland and then reemerged at with all these years 
that had just been, you know, she'll never get back that weren't really hers that were somebody else's and, and kind of facing this really uncertain futures as well. I, I don't know. I, I found, I found it really quite moving. And just as I found the end of, of Marie Antoinette uh, chilling, I mean, those final couple, final line, final shot. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. She, you know, well, whatever the rush to get there in either case, I think both the ends of both these movies are, are remarkable. And I, and I also like the, I also like the rushes too, but, you know, but nonetheless, you putting it in terms of law, I think makes them both work a little better for me because we spend so much of the movie seeing what they have, you know, and what you feel as you walk away from, or are torn away from it. And in Marie Antoinette's case, is compelling in its own way. That needle drop that you mentioned to Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You is the thing I was elliptically referring to earlier as something I found out from Pop Culture Happy Hour that I absolutely love, which is one of the reasons that song is being used there. Stop me if you know this one already. Apparently, Elvis Presley's representation came to Dolly Parton and said, Elvis wants to record this song, but in order to do so, he's going to need 50% of the residual rights for, you know, available future. And as we know, that's probably because Colonel Tom Parker always wanted a contractually a bigger piece of the pie than was normal in order to fuel his own habits. But in this case, Dolly Parton said, no, I, I don't need that. So when that mu- music is playing at the end, it's not just an incredibly appropriate, sad song about somebody leaving the person they love. It's also very specifically tapping into a little piece of history about somebody who walked away from Elvis and walked away from a connection with him because she could do better on her own. And the appositeness of that moment is, and that that musical choice just blows my mind and just kind of speaks to how in both of these films, I disagree with a lot of Sofia Coppola's artistic choices sometimes. But I never question that they're deliberate and thoughtful and uh, like worked through and, and very carefully considered. I will say this. It may be a little short-sighted if you are the manager of the biggest rock star in the world to uh, have a business structure in place where, where the best so- songwriters aren't necessarily going to be drawn <laughs> to give you their their songs uh, if they can do better elsewhere. But uh, I don't know. I, I think – I don't know. I think I think could have had better, better management. It- yeah. <laughs> Almost sounds like you're saying Colonel Tom Parker was not the best manager that Elvis Presley possibly could have well, had. Well, I also, you know, he was someone who wanted to basically uh, didn't really care about burning the resource uh, as as he used it. I guess. Anyway, that's a whole. Well, other, we are topic. we have definitely hit the point where we're drifting away from the women that we're supposed to be centering uh, <laughs> in these stories towards the men who formed the the barely glimpsed framings of their lives in these two movies. So it's probably time to move on. Marie Antoinette is streaming free with ads on the CW of all places, and it's available for rental on all of the usual digital services. It's on DVD and Blu-ray as well. Priscilla is currently in theaters. I don't want to see it with ads on the CW. <laughs> please don't. Please don't. We watched watch it, it that way, way and it it was the, at times it was hilarious. You know, uh, somebody would 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 come charging in with a pronunciation about uh, something that the Americas were doing, and then we'd like cut to a Flonase commercial or something. <laughs> I find uh, it weirdly comforting when the commercials kick in because, like, oh, it's like I'm watching a movie on TV in, in the in the 80s or 90s or something, you know. Except with much more of a sense that you're still you're still gonna get to see the whole movie and not like 65% of the movie. And in the right aspect ratio too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call this section Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what do you have for us this week? Well, I wanted to. I mean, we are at that time of year. We're just an avalanche of good films coming out, and we can't really cover them all in the main episode or even the bonus episodes, but they're really some of them are really worth talking about uh, and highlighting. And, and one of those films I like to uh, highlight is The Holdovers, the new film by Alexander Payne and his second collaboration with Paul Giamatti, uh, who he'd worked with almost 20 years ago is it i think mm. with uh, is it 20 years 2004 i think was the uh was sideways mm-hmm. the, the, and uh this is a very similar character similar dynamic and similarly works wonderfully uh here Jumati plays an ancient civ teacher at a boarding school in uh new england in uh, 1970 and uh it's it's the it's uh, the christmas season and uh he has been uh, tasked with uh taking care of any of the students whose uh, uh rich parents are not for some reason picking them up uh so these are kids who are not not coming home for christmas and are stuck with this curmudgeonly teacher and ultimately it starts as f- with five of them and then it is really just reduced to just one uh, very interesting and rebellious teenager and uh and, and it's about their relationship and and uh it also kind of uh brings in this other character played by a uh, divine joy randolph who sort of r- runs the cafeteria at the school and she has lost her son in uh vietnam she uh, fairly recently she so she is sort of in in, in grief and uh so she's a major part of the film as well it's a film that is very evocative of the era and of that particular era of filmmaking of the night of the 1970s uh, hal ashby is, is certainly a name that's come up particularly a movie like the last detail uh though this is a much funnier lighter and maybe more sentimental film uh, than the last detail. I thought it was, you know, everything that it was supposed to be really funny and, and, and moving and, and beautifully performed. And it kind of, one of the things that I, I thought about watching it was like how much Alexander Payne wants to be or would be a mainstream studio filmmaker if he was not in the time we live in now. <laughs> if, if somehow what he does is weren't like, considered an art film because like this is a film that i think is so broadly satisfying it is a film that you'd, you'd feel very comfortable at least i would feel very comfortable bringing you know my family to see it was just there's something just so like you know satisfyingly in the main about this movie uh, it, you know despite it also being um beautifully written and uh, performed i don't know i really liked it what, what, what do you all think because i know a couple of you all, uh saw it as well well to your point uh scott i i saw it just this afternoon in fact uh with my mom who our initial plan was to go see uh killers of the flower moon which i sadly have, have not seen yet but my husband and i were going to go see that and my mom asked if she could join us for a movie and I told her that we were going to go see Killers of the Flower Moon and that it was three and a half hours long. She's like, oh, maybe I won't come after all. And then I said, we were also thinking of seeing The Holdovers. And she's like, oh, I've been wanting to see that. Let's go see that. So it definitely well, has the mom vote <laughs> there. But And it was a, a packed theater, too, on a, on a Sunday afternoon. So yeah, uh, It got applause you know, at the, I, the, I, the, it got applause yeah, at the end of the, the, the screening I went to. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a crowd pleaser. 
I can't speak highly enough of Divine Joy Randolph's role, even though I think naming that character Mary Lamb uh, <laughs> a story set at Christmas is maybe a little on the nose, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let it slide. But like all the three core performances, uh, Giamatti, uh, Randolph, and then Dominic Sessa is who plays the student who, who stays behind. Just a really uh, amazing trifecta, the, the three of them. And all three performances are unexpected in their own way. All three characters are unexpected in their own way. You know, it's a, a movie that like, it doesn't really pull the rug out from you in any way, but it's also not one where I necessarily knew where it was going uh, in terms of character or narrative while I was watching it. So uh, yeah, I super enjoyed it too. Yeah, I'll echo what else thoughts here. I thought I thought it was great. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. And you know, I, I was very obviously. Uh, I mean, Vajra Randolph is someone I'd seen before and, and liked quite a bit. And she's in the High Fidelity Hulu series, uh, and I know her from uh, uh, Only Murders in the Building too. Yeah, all um, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah but Giamatti, I was someone I know. But Dominic Sessa was what, what a fantastic debut. I think it's a debut, or or at least first mm-hmm. time I've uh, first. He doesn't have of, a Wikipedia page, so yeah. uh, well, he can't, who can't is have he done even? that much. Come on, yeah. get to work now. Get to work. This is this time has come. He needs to have a Wikipedia page that re- redirects uh, to a former employer if if you uh, type in their name. Uh, not that I know anyone <laughs> like that, but uh, <laughs> I I should also it is some bit of self promotion. I I did write a piece for the reveal talking about the Paul Giamatti Alexander Payne collaboration and and uh, and the holdovers and sideways that uh, it was, was good too with. and it had an, yeah. an amazing headline which I'm not, I'm not even going to spoil you have to go to the reveal to see Scott's <laughs> amazing headline for this piece <laughs> the I'll say it I call it the quaffable wines uh, wines being W H I N E see that's what it doesn't yes. work on, doesn't work out loud you have to see it on the page the quaffable like, what, wines. What you, oh oh ho, ho, I see it's good stuff <laughs> this is why we 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 have not hemorrhaged subscribers they're hanging on for they're hanging on for dear life i just want to clarify that the the reason that we are talking about this in your next picture show is that it, it is a film that we kind of wanted to do for the main episode that we had a, a pairing built in as, as scott already talked about but it and priscilla are in theaters at the same time and i don't think holdovers is going to be in theaters long enough for us to uh, or at least in the conversation long enough for us to do it afterwards so it kind of fell into that like in between mm-hmm. zone that uh, is unfortunately common at this time of year so we're giving it it's it's here also we've talked about alexander Payne on the podcast before we covered sideways with with another round and we have not ever covered Sofia Coppola, so it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. But, but I we definitely like holdovers. We did, is a, begu- we did a beguiled pairing. We do a beguiled no, pairing. No, jeez, I don't even know. We've done a lot of episodes. <laughs> four hundred or four hundred and one. Actually, you're listening to four hundred and one now. Uh, yeah, uh, very but, but no, I'm, I'm, pr- I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure as the the resident Sofia Coppola head. Uh, who actually has not seen On the Rock, so maybe I shouldn't claim that title. But I, I don't think that we it. have covered her. Crank up your Apple uh, TV. On, on it's, <laughs> it's the least essential of her movies, but it's, it's pretty good. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, good. It's, yeah, goodness gracious. Yeah, I'll, 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 probably, I'll watch it soon. I, I, this definitely reignited uh, my, my interest in Coppola. So. It's better than Fingernails. Fingernails is on Apple TV+. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, that's quite the jump. It seems like we may have uh, run aground on the rocks, as it were, so we should probably move on. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. We welcome your feedback on Marie Antoinette, Priscilla, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Oh, uh, well, you can find me on X at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find me on Blue Sky at, at Scott Tobias dot whatever the hell. It's uh, w- without any underscore. Uh, my main uh, uh, outlet is uh, the newsletter I do with Keith Phipps. That's uh, The Reveal at thereveal.substack.com. And then you can find my work in the New York Times, uh, in uh, Vulture, in Guardian, and other fine publications. Uh, what about you, Genevieve? I am the TV editor at vulture.com, um, technically on X and Blue Sky, although not active at the moment. Uh, if you want to see pictures from the vacation I just went on, you can find me on Instagram at Genevieve Kosky. But that's that's about it. I'm I'm pretty uninspired by talking on the internet these days so i've uh, kind of been avoiding social media but i don't know these things ebb and flow so maybe i'll, I'll get back on there you should follow just in case i do i guess <laughs> instagram has booted me because uh apparently being on instagram to see other people's stuff and uh, not uh posting stuff myself is anathema so i don't know the answer to this question genevieve but are you uh still do you do you still maintain an active instagram for your dogs active would be uh an, an overstatement <laughs> but it is is uh you know yeah yes and yeah they they, they pop up ladybird the horgy pops up uh now now and then (laughs) we need more sploot pictures always more sploot pictures (laughs) i can provide (laughs) uh keith what about you Ah, I am a freelance writer. I write for places like uh, Vulture. I had a piece in Slate recently, a place in a piece in The Ringer recently, and as Scott mentioned, I am the uh, co-author of The Reveal, a movies podcast available at thereveal.substack.com. And I'm also yeah, I'm on the I'm on the social media. I'm mostly on Blue Sky. I don't I don't I don't, I don't get Scott. I was, I was going to call you out here. I don't get why you're still there. Over at X or whatever. It's lively. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, I, I'm, I'm. You can find me at Blue Sky. Not enough people I'm, fight with him on Blue Sky, and he doesn't like it. Yeah, that makes sense. He's got to argue with people. <laughs> I do. I'm not on the free Scott. I know it's about yourself. Natasha, <laughs> how about you? I still exist on Twitter, which I'm never going to call X. I very (laughs) rarely post over there. Uh, I'm much more active on Blue Sky these days at Tasha Robinson. I am still the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com, where you can find a whole bunch of my writing coming up because, boy, are we hitting it right now with the movies. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net on Twitter. Twitter, I say. Twitter at Next Picture Pod and on Blue Sky at The Next Picture Show. You can get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash next picture show. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>